Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry, a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there. Through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews, Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Welcome to episode number 11 of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. Today, I'm really excited because we have our first guest on the podcast. So I'd like to welcome Kaz Nesbitt. Kaz is the senior manager at the Peterborough office of Grant Thornton, LLP. He has extensive experience as a trusted advisor to high net worth individuals and retirees, as well as privately held businesses and their shareholders. Kaz has been involved in all aspects of tax planning and compliance. He's led numerous structuring transactions, satisfying taxpayer objectives at the corporate, personal, and estate level. Uh, he works closely with taxpayers and their advisors to provide succession and estate planning advice to minimize tax while maximizing wealth. So, you know, all things that we're a big plan of here, and it's really, you know, it's a, a great compliment to, to what we're doing in here with retirement income planning. So we're going to talk about some taxes today. We're going to talk about you know, specifically, how do we limit your lifetime tax bill? We'll touch on things to think about, things you should be considering uh, when you're in retirement or approaching retirement that could help limit it with limiting the, uh, the, the lifetime tax bills. And also, we'll talk about, you know, things that you could be doing right now. More specifically, we'll talk about some topics related to uh, RIF income planning and making sure there's not a big tax bill uh, left when you pass away. We'll talk about Kaz's thoughts on maximizing tax-free savings accounts in retirement, uh, harvesting capital gains and losses. You know, there's a number of other topics we're gonna we'll tackle today, and uh, I'm confident that if you uh, if you make it through this episode, you're gonna get some real value from listening to what Kaz has to say about some of these topics. So, with that, you know, hopefully you have time to uh, kick back and relax and enjoy the episode. Welcome to your retirement planning simplified. I'm your host, Joe Curry, and today I'm super excited to have our first guest on the podcast, Kaz Nesbitt of uh, Grant Thornton here in Peterborough, Ontario. So Kaz, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Joe. All right. So I'm excited today. This is almost going to be a little bit of a recap of some of our early episodes, but it's nice to have an actual specialist on here speaking to this. We'll talk a little bit about taxes. Uh, Specifically, we'll talk about kind of maybe taxes clients aren't necessarily thinking of, and specifically, again, taxes on death, right? So maybe, uh, you know, we'll dive into some questions and and go into some details on this, Kaz, but from a high level, can you maybe just talk to me a little bit about what you see as far as, uh, I guess, tax planning and and death and and maybe just in general, lifetime taxes? Yeah, absolutely. I think people, retirees specifically, or people like to maximize their wealth as much as possible. And it's nice to draw down on it through your lifetime, but often there does end up to be a pool of wealth when people pass away. And sometimes the the tax liability catches the estate off guard. The executors, the trustees aren't necessarily ready for it. They don't know where it is. And there could be certain areas or certain pools that have higher tax rates that aren't expected for. So you might not necessarily want to lose half of the balance to the government. So it's nice to plan over your lifetime and to use some of those pools up as you approach that time. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I know 
we have clients who come in and they'll hear about uh, a friend or maybe it was the estate for their parents or something they've looked at and they've been shocked by the amount of, of taxes that were paid. And so that does come to light sometimes from the clients, but a lot of times people just aren't even thinking about this stuff until, until they see something like that or you know, maybe they don't ever see it. So today, let's talk a little bit about some uh, of the specifics and things that we can do or clients can be doing that will help them minimize those taxes. You know, maybe probably the, the thing that I hear the most about is how clients are, are scared that half of their, their RIFs are going to go to taxes or more than half of their RIFs. So are there things that clients can be doing during their lifetime or during their retirement that could help minimize those taxes? Yeah, absolutely. So Generally, I think without any advice otherwise, clients would sort of draw on their their wealth for the different pools just to fund their lifestyle. But sometimes you could end up with a large amount at the end, and sometimes it makes sense to recognize some of these tax-deferred assets, like the the RIFs over time, beyond the amount that they need for their lifestyle, and maybe move that into a, a different tax-sheltered pool. So just for example, by using the RIF, for example... That gets taxed at a very high rate when um, the taxpayer passes away. It gets taxed as other income, whereas a non-registered portfolio, any accrued capital gains on that portfolio get taxed at about a 50% tax rate. And that's sorry, 50% of the marginal rate that they're in. So even at the, the highest tax rate, that's only about 27%, whereas a, a taxpayer who has income on death or deemed income on death over a couple hundred thousand, that RIF would be taxed at almost 54%. So it sometimes makes sense to move funds out of the a RIF or registered retirement account over time to reduce that sort of tax burden to take advantage of the graduated tax rates because the higher your income is, the higher the tax bracket you're in. So recognize some of that at a lower tax rate over time and move it into a pool that might not be taxed as inefficiently when they pass away. Okay. And is there specific marginal tax rates you're aiming for for a client or is it specific to each client or you're just looking out for like an old age security clawback making sure you stay under that you know i guess just in general are there guidelines or rules of thumb that you're following when you're doing that kind of planning there are and it depends i guess how much income that the the taxpayer needs to to fund their lifestyle and i would say i would target somewhere around that so the old age security clawback is around the, the seventy-five to eighty thousand dollar threshold. It's indexed to inflation, but someone who wanted income around that threshold and, and saying they maybe wanted sixty thousand dollars to fund their lifestyle, but they have a large RIF, I might suggest they go up to that old age security clawback threshold and recognize another fifteen or twenty thousand dollars of income per year before the old age security starts getting clawed back. But someone who's already going to be over that threshold or, or well over that threshold, we might play around with some other tax brackets. So it it does depend, but I would say the old age security threshold isn't the, the be all end all. You do lose that money, it goes back. But if you have enough of a pool of wealth anyways, it's going to all go into income and get taxed at a high rate when you pass away. It might make sense to use some of that other income and compromise that old age security threshold. Okay. And that kind of brings me to uh, another question I had for you about the old age security clawback being the end all be all, because uh, as we spoke about before, a lot of people that I'm talking to, they, they'll kind of think about that as a, a threshold they cannot go above to the point where they'll maybe 
make sacrifices in growth of their assets or, you know, other decisions that might not be in their best interest long-term as far as building wealth goes. So, so I guess what you're saying and, and you know, what I would agree with is that, you know, while we don't want to pay back some of our old age security, there's other considerations that are, are going to go into making good decisions about, you know, our long-term tax bill and, and building wealth. Would you say that's pretty accurate? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. As nice as it is to sort of get even paying taxes your whole life and to get this free money from the government or money you feel like you might be entitled to from the the government from that old age security. I think you have to balance that with the fact that if you compromise recognizing some of your other income that's going to be taxable at death anyways, that money's still sort of going to the government to buy your estate as opposed to going back to the government with the OAS clawback. So I don't think it is the be-all, end-all. I think there's some room for movement or some considerations around your your tax brackets there. Okay. So I mean, like anything else, really, we need to take into consideration the big picture rather than getting fixated on any kind of one piece that, that really doesn't, I guess, account for everything else going on in the client situation. Absolutely. Okay. And kind of just going back to the uh, the risks for a second, you know, the way that we've approached increasing income for clients to help get some of the money out of the risk so they don't have that big tax bill when they do pass away is, is balancing that, but also balancing how close the, you know, the client is to needing every dollar of tax deferred growth that they can get based on their situation. So, and this is going to be specific to, you know, any, every client's going to be a little bit different. So, you know, we could have a client with $5 million, but they need all of that $5 million to make sure they don't run out of money, or it could be a client with uh, half a million dollars. Again, same situation, just relative to them. And so what we've always done is if we, you know, we're pretty confident there's going to be a good nest egg left in the rifts when something happens to them, you know, we'll try to bump up the amount we're taking out and I call it leveraging tax brackets. So at least getting them up to the top of the tax bracket they're in, again, depending on the situation, maybe going to the next one. But also considering that the tax deferred growth they are getting by keeping the money in the registered assets as long as possible to make sure that they don't run out of money, you know, given their situation. So from your standpoint, when you're looking at it, do you find, you know, that is a consideration that you guys take or is it just, you know, getting money out of the registered assets and, you know, reasonable marginal tax rates? Is it outweighing the tax deferred growth anyway, even if they're going to use that money later? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors to consider there. And I, I wouldn't let the tax tail wag the economic dog as I guess what I would say on that. But in a, a planning scenario, it would be ideal if you know how long someone's going to live. And I think you talked about that in a previous podcast that it, it's harder to predict that these days. So I mean, that that would be your situation. If you know when someone's going to pass away, you try and space it out. But I think as you said, if you can get an idea, I guess, or, or plan for a point. And if you think there's going to be a nest egg, I think it would be to really spread it out. And as you said, leverage the tax brackets, but it for sure is a trade-off and it depends maybe what you're invested in, what the market's like, whether or not it's worthwhile to pay a little bit, prepay some tax, I guess, pay a little bit more tax now. So you don't pay even more tax later, but you're compromising the amount that you have left over after prepaying that tax to invest. So you do have to balance with market returns. I mean, tax deferral is sort of what we strive for in it in the tax planning community or as a tax planning advisor, we want to defer tax as much as possible, but you have to balance it with the trade-off of paying a high rate of tax later. So it really does depend on the lifestyle needs and the the pool of funds that we're working with. 
Okay, perfect. Uh, and it's funny you say not letting the tax tail wig the economic dog. It's a it's a line I specifically use with clients quite a bit. So I don't know if I stole that from you from another conversation we've had or if we both heard it somewhere else, but this made me chuckle. Moving on, the next question I had for you is uh, just in general, kind of your thoughts on maximizing tax-free savings accounts in retirement versus maybe using the funds that are in tax-free savings accounts to provide some tax-free income for clients. So, you know, our philosophy has always been outside some, you know, unique circumstances has always been getting as much money into tax-free savings accounts as we can and, and letting them continue to grow. And if clients don't use them, it's almost like a, a life insurance policy paying out tax-free when they do pass away. I'm just curious to your thoughts uh, around that. Yeah, sort of as you indicated there, I mean, it, it can certainly be situation specific, but to, to speak generally, I, I do like the idea of sort of prolonging that again, that sort of that tax-free growth. So the money that goes into a tax-free savings account has been taxed previously, but once it's in there, it grows on a tax-deferred basis and it comes out tax-free. So sort of when we're looking at death and taxes, for example, that money isn't taxable when you pass away, unlike some other funds. So I would suggest again that you sort of draw down on those taxable funds again to leverage your tax brackets otherwise. And then when you need somewhere to put those funds, so they they aren't taxable and you don't run into the same issue. I like the idea of maximizing that tax-free savings account. And the bonus on that as well, not to get too far out of the realm of income tax, but yet in certain provinces like Ontario, you do need to consider probate or state administration tax too. And money that's left in a tax-free savings account, if you have a named beneficiary, might not be subject to that estate administration tax. So it's yeah, sort of double the benefit on that. So generally speaking, I do like the idea of continuing to hold those funds in the TFSA and to contribute the funds, maybe you draw from your taxable accounts into that to maximize it to the extent possible. Okay. I wasn't going here, but you you brought up another point about avoiding probate and the name beneficiaries. So I'm just curious to your thoughts on RIFs or RSP beneficiaries. So, I mean, the same idea, obviously we can have a, a name beneficiary on those registered accounts, but if there's not, you know, a lot of liquidity in the estate, you know, the taxes still have to be paid on the registered accounts as we're talking about right now. So I'm just curious, do you guys have a philosophy around, I guess, having those assets go to the estate, even though there's some probate there, just so you know, there's liquidity in the estate versus actually having the registered assets left to name beneficiaries in the family? I I don't think I have a a certain strategy that a one size fits all strategy on that. I think it is very situation specific, but I will say that it, it certainly can make for an awkward situation if if there isn't liquidity in the estate. And let's use a, an example of something that that's illiquid. So if someone has a bunch of real estate, so they, they might get a principal residence exemption on their primary residence, but if they have other real estate, there is going to be some tax to pay on that real estate. And if there isn't sort of sufficient funds to to pay for that outside maybe a, a RIF account, that does certainly create a problem. And that if that RIF money gets paid out to, to different beneficiaries than the rest of the estate, there's still a big tax burden in the estate that has to pay for that, those other illiquid assets like the tax on the real estate. So I do think it is certainly something to consider, but I, I don't have a one size fits all approach for it. Okay. So maybe if we just keep kind of going down that road, you mentioned uh, real estate beyond the, the primary residence. So I think that's definitely something that a lot of clients that I've talked to, you know, there might be a family cottage, maybe there's some rental real estate, but they haven't really thought about the tax consequences when they pass away, thinking that they want, you know, maybe their kids to keep that property in the family. So, you know, what are your your thoughts on, on how to manage 
those taxes that come up? What do those taxes even look like? Maybe you could speak a little bit to that. And, you know, are there any strategies that you know of that can help make sure those taxes are taken care of so that property can stay in the family? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess we'll speak to sort of the standard situation, which might be a, a cottage or like a personal use property. Because if we're, we're talking about rental properties, there could be a little bit more to consider. If it's been depreciated, there could be sort of some some other income coming in there. But if we're looking at a general sort of secondary residence, I don't know, a ski chalet or cottage or something of that nature, you're looking mostly at um, capital gains tax on that. So um, that would be the increase in value beyond what it was paid for it and the amount put in for renovations. So it does get included in your marginal tax rates, um, just like other income, but only 50% of that capital gain goes into income. So again, if we're talking about a, a high rate taxpayer who has over $200,000 or so of income in Ontario at the time they passed away, the RIF would be taxed at about 54%, whereas the capital gain on that the real estate gets taxed at about 27% when I round it. So it is efficient from a tax perspective, having a capital gain there, but unlike a, a RIF or some non-registered investments or anything sort of cash, you do have to come up with the money to pay the tax. So from a planning perspective, sometimes it makes sense to have a, a life insurance policy that sort of manages the expected tax on that. Or if it is going to pass on to the next generation, sometimes it makes sense to, to do it in tranches over time. So maybe uh, gift a portion of it to the family member year by year in advance. So so you can use those marginal tax rates. So if you recognize a portion of that capital gain each year by gifting it in tranches, maybe you, you sell it to the, the kids and take back a note and maybe you forgive that note in your will. I don't want to get too deep into the planning there, but just another strategy that we we consider or, or just a straight sort of sale if it's not going to the kids in your lifetime. Another thing lately we've been trying to manage on this is there have been talks over the past couple of years with potential of increasing capital gains rates. So I talked about how efficient sort of capital gains are now, but if that does increase in the future, it might not be quite as efficient. So I have had certain clients that have been recognizing capital gains now when they know that the rates are low by say gifting that property to their their children in the lifetime so that they know what that tax rate is. Again, you're you're losing that deferral of tax, but it's just a little bit of security or insurance knowing that. Okay. Okay. That's some good insight. And uh, I think you led right into my, my next question, which is around harvesting capital losses, but also capital gains. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in the, the planning community about harvesting capital losses, because as you know, you know, capital losses can then be used or carried forward or backwards to help offset other gains. But uh, on the same hand, we don't know what the future looks like. We don't know what tax rates might be in the future. And at the end of the day, the taxes have to get paid at some point. Too many capital gains or, you know, a lot of capital gains could, again, bump a, an estate up into that top marginal tax rate. Or in the future, if clients need to use that money, but the inclusion rate for capital gains has changed, you know, there could be a disadvantage there. So something that we've done with clients based on what you were just talking about is how there is talk about maybe capital gain inclusion rates being increased in the future is we're okay with actually, you know, capturing capital gains or realizing capital gains. We're not necessarily just specifically, uh, you know, doing it for no reason other than that. But if, you know, we want to rebalance the portfolio, 
or if we want to, you know, change the makeup of a portfolio or we want to move stuff over to tax-free savings accounts. We're definitely not afraid of realizing those capital gains, but just, I don't know if you have any, any insights into to that or any thoughts on that process. I generally agree sort of with the, the strategy you talked about there. Again, as I mentioned before, capital gains are about the most efficient source of income that you can earn on, on something of taxable income. That is, I mean, there's certainly non-taxable income, like from a tax-free savings account, but if you have to choose a pool of where to recognize income, I think capital gains is about as efficient as it can get. So this might compete with sort of what we talked about earlier of spreading out that that RIF income or drawing down on your RIF. But if you have a strategy sort of in place there that you're you're implementing on how you're going to draw down the RIF, but you need more money in a certain year, rather than draw additional from the RIF to bump up that tax rate, if you can recognize a capital gain on something in a non-registered account and get your income from that source, it's going to be taxed a little bit more efficiently. And again, competing with potential for increased inclusion rates, et cetera. But just from the tax rate alone, I do like the idea of recognizing your income as a capital gain as opposed to pulling it from some other less efficiently taxed source. Okay, awesome. And then two other things I wanted to touch on with you. So one of them is kind of related, again, to what we just talked about, but I call it asset location. So Specifically, we're talking about investment accounts. Um, you know, if we have non-registered, fully taxable accounts versus tax-free savings accounts versus tax-deferred registered accounts like RIFs, LIFs, RSPs, that kind of stuff. Do you have any specific thoughts or, or preferences on on how clients are holding those assets? You know, I, I know certain people have some some thoughts or some philosophies behind that. Just curious in your thoughts. Yeah, it isn't something that I. I go too deep into planning into because there are so many sources of income and so many things to consider. If it's foreign sourced, you have to consider foreign tax credits, which are are nice to get if it's in a, a taxable or a non-registered account and you might otherwise lose it in a in some sort of registered account or there's more efficient pools of income. So, I mean, if I was specifically asked and to, to where to target things, I would say there is some logic to putting some more tax efficient investments into your non-registered account, like maybe your equities, your dividend paying stocks, your capital gains sort of accruing stocks, et cetera. But I think for the effort that it's worth and that you have to balance the portfolios, you have different sort of competing objectives of where you want to pull from. So I don't get too hung up on it. I think as long as you have a balanced portfolio across your accounts, generally, I feel like it works itself out and there's probably probably not worth the investment or time and the balancing of all those different investments too much. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that uh, aligns perfectly with the way we look at things. We're generally more worried about, you know, meeting the client's objectives, their risk of time rise and all those kind of, as you say, kind of competing objectives before we're worried about looking at asset location. And because things could change in the future, you know, we could go through that planning and it, it could just not work out, you know, the way that we were expecting. That's kind of our thought on it anyway, but it sounds like that kind of aligns with what you're saying. And then, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about and ask you about, and this kind of could be related back to everything I think we've talked about so far. And this is something in the insurance world, you know, a lot of uh, companies try to talk to, to brokers about putting out these philosophies. And so it's called, you know, some companies might call it the insured retirement plan. Some companies may refer to it as an unlimited tax-free savings account. And I guess the idea is, you know, with all the worries that we just talked about that are the concerns about paying, uh, you know, higher taxes, uh, on the estate or or even you know going over old age security clawbacks or bumping into marginal tax rates that are too high. So the thought behind the strategy is 
getting a, you know, a cash value life insurance policy. And there, you know, there's different ways you could do that. So they're going in, in too deep. The idea would be having the life insurance policy where you overfund it. So you put in premium amounts that are above and beyond what's required to pay for the insurance. And within the life insurance, you can then uh, have different types of investments that could grow. And it's, it's basically, it's tax deferred growth in there. Uh, you don't pay any tax unless you pull it out. If you pass away, it's a life insurance policy. So life insurance, as we talked about, could be there to provide liquidity for taxes, for things like the RIF, for things like real estate beyond primary residence. But in the meantime, there is some growth within those uh, investments inside the life insurance that clients could draw on, and they could do that through a loan borrowing against the policy. So in that case, they're actually not paying any, any taxes because it's just a loan. They're just paying the interest on the loan. The idea, the the theory behind it is that the the life insurance will later pay off the loan and again, provide some additional liquidity. Uh, In the meantime, that if clients are using that that as a strategy for getting income, uh, it's not actually uh, bumping them into higher marginal rates. It's not affecting the older security clawback, all that kind of stuff. But on the same hand, regardless of how things are being illustrated, I'd argue you're not going to get the same kind of growth from uh, anything in a life insurance policy that you're going to get from say just your regular type of portfolio. So I don't really have an opinion one way or another on this. Uh, I think in theory, it makes a lot of sense. I think in, in practice, you know, probably not a ton of situations it makes sense for, but I'm just curious on your thoughts. Have you seen it used? Do you ever recommend it? Just in general, your thoughts. Yeah, I, th- I think it is a, a useful tool to, to be aware of, but I think it is very situational. And again, as we talked about, there's always competing objectives sort of in your estate planning and different pools you're pulling from, et cetera. So I guess just by way of example, to maybe take us back to what we talked about before about sort of the efficiencies of different tax rates, or maybe the not using the, the tax-free savings account and sort of keeping that pool to be tax-free when someone passes away, I might liken this to being somewhat similar in that if someone needs some money and they have a, a very large rift that's going to all go into income when they pass away, that's going to be taxable when they pass away. So if they haven't drawn on that, instead borrowed against a life insurance policy, which wasn't taxable, there's that amount to repay on the life insurance policy. So the life insurance repays itself or repays the loan before it pays out tax-free at death, whereas that pool from the RIF is still sitting there and is still taxable. So you do have to balance that, I think, against against other things. But I think life insurance in general is a, a useful tool. But if it's fully leveraged and fully borrowed against, the, the estate isn't really getting that tax-free money. It's getting whatever's left over the loan. But I think sure. that's sort of a maybe one of the cons towards it. But there, there certainly are times and places for it, but it, it really depends. I, yeah. As you said, I think I'm agnostic with it, but it just depends on the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree hundred percent. Very situationally specific, but I appreciate your thoughts on that. Again, it's something that you know, is definitely pushed in the, in the life insurance world. And again, I, I agree there's, there's a fit for it, but I don't think it's uh, a fit for everybody. So I think, uh, you know, we went pretty deep on, uh, or touched on a lot of different topics. I think this is all stuff that's, you know, very helpful for people who are starting to think about or already taking income from their own assets to, and then, you know, no longer working. So, I think we could probably leave it there. I really appreciate your time today, Kaz. Just uh, you know, before we sign off here, are there any other uh, thoughts or, or tips or anything else you would say to someone who's retired or, or nearing retirement that they should be thinking about as far as lowering their, their uh, lifetime tax bill? 
Yeah, I don't think anything that we, we haven't talked about, but just to maybe drive home a couple points that we did talk about is just consider the the types of assets that you're going to continue to hold when you pass away and what what sort of tax pool they fall into, how efficient they are, and, and think about that as you're drawing down your assets over your lifetime. And again, just the concept of sometimes it makes sense to recognize a little bit more income than you actually need to live on just to spread out that tax bill and to leverage those tax brackets. I think those are the main points I just want to drive home, but well, thank, I think we covered a lot today. Awesome. That's great. And I guess the other thing would be how, how can people find you Kaz? How can you help people, people get in touch and just let us know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I work at Grant Thornton. You can find me you know, on grantthornton.ca is our, our website and you can search Kaz Nesbitt or you can find me on LinkedIn, Kaz Nesbitt, or, or send me an email, kaz.nesbitt at ca.gt.com. Probably the best ways to reach me. Okay. We appreciate that. You know, anyone who's looking for, you know, this type of tax planning beyond that, I think Kaz, you, you probably help a lot of people with exit planning from businesses, uh, that type of estate planning as well. So anyone has any kind of questions about that, Kaz is definitely your guy. I, uh, you know, I invite you to reach out to him for sure. Kaz, again, just want to say thanks. It's been great having you on here. I really appreciate you being on here as our first guest. So that's pretty exciting and I'm excited for this to launch. Thanks so much, Joe. I appreciate the the privilege of being your first guest. This was good. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. If you'd like to see how prepared you are for retirement, we've created a free retirement readiness calculator to help you out. Go to matthewsandassociates.ca forward slash ready to input your retirement information and receive instant feedback to help you evaluate your current retirement readiness. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.